My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning, this is Pastor Lane Jones from Coggins Baptist Church. Good to be with you for another Beacon of Hope broadcast. And for many months now, we've been following Jesus through his life and ministry. And last week, we began to finally come to Christ's resurrection. And the accounts of this event are so critical to your life and mine, and they are honestly so varied yet they provide a unified explanation of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead three days after he was crucified on a Roman cross and buried in a rich man's borrowed tomb. Last week, we examined the following incident. Mary Magdalene, the woman who had seven demons, was the first to see the resurrected Christ. When Mary told the disciples that she had seen Christ, they did not believe her. The next thing we talked about last week was how Jesus appeared to the women who had gone to the tomb and seen the angels as they were leaving and running to bring the disciples word, this must be just in moments after, he appears to them and they are stunned and he also tells them to meet him in Galilee. And when they got back and finally found the disciples, they too were not believed. Jesus next appeared to Peter, but other than the fact that this meeting happened, we have no further information on this event. And then we closed last week with but looking at how Jesus, on later in the day on Sunday, remember this is the first day of the work week for the Jewish people, Jesus appeared to two men, one named Cleopas, the other is unnamed, and while these followers of Jesus were walking from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus, they see someone that seems to be a stranger that shows up and begins to talk to them, and, and we know from the scriptures that uh, the Lord withheld their ability to recognize him, it specifically says that. And so for most of the hours that Jesus was with these men, um, Christ explains to them from the Old Testament scriptures how he was, in fact, the Messiah, how the Messiah was to die. And at the very end of their time with Jesus, he allowed them to recognize him, and he vanished out of their sight. And having now seen and spoken with Christ for several hours, they return to Jerusalem to tell their account to Jesus' closest disciples. Now, these men were probably not uh, part of the Twelve, but they would have been people who were followers of Jesus and knew the disciples. They actually knew them personally and knew where they could find them. So they get back, probably now we're looking at late Sunday evening. Gospel of Mark chapter 16, verse 13 tells us that the apostles did not believe Cleopas and his friend's account as well. I can understand, in some regard, this reaction by the other apostles since Jesus had not yet appeared to them. Would, would you not wonder if, if you were one of the original 12 disciples, if all these people were making up some of this since the rumors of Christ's resurrection were being circulated, and yet you had not seen him? Why would Jesus appear to the women and to some of his disciples that were not as close to him as the twelve, and yet not appear to those he had handpicked to follow him? So if you were Matthew or James and had not seen Jesus yet, would you not want to dismiss those supposed sightings of Christ? That is where we left off last week. So today we're going to come to two other appearances of Christ, both of which involve Jesus' loyal disciples, in a time when there's some willful blindness going on. And I'll try to explain that as we go, because, you know, we can become too proud to be willing to see the truth. I hope you're not there. hope I'm not there. Before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we know there are times that even those of us who are trying to follow you 
can become blind in our pride. Lord, we certainly know it was true of your enemies, of those who were opposing Christ. But Lord, here are disciples, followers of you, close followers, people who loved you. They had become blind to the realities of the resurrection that they were hearing. And so I pray that you will speak to both believers and unbelievers alike as we consider these two other appearances of Christ and the many, among the many, that our Lord had in the days of following his resurrection. Pray you bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's talk first of all about Christ's appearance to 10 of his 11 loyal disciples. Now, for this event, I'll draw again from Mark, Luke, and John's accounts. They all write about Christ's first appearance to his disciples on that first Sunday of his resurrection, and it was really right after the men came back from the town of Emmaus and and presented to the disciples what had happened to them. So why uh, we have all these uh, apostles that have not seen the Lord yet. Uh, So let's go to John and Luke's account of this incident. Now Luke takes us to uh, this place, but he informs us that that. He's the one that tells us that it's just after those men got back from Emmaus and had talked to them. And then Jesus appears to those who were there. So let me read to you. I'm starting out of Luke chapter 24 and verse 36 and 37. It says, Now, as they, that is the men from Emmaus, said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. So what does Jesus do? How does he interact with his disciples as uh, they see him for the first time? Now, these would be, again, 10 of the 11. Well, Jesus, first of all, comforted his disciples. You'll notice that he, he says, peace be to you, or peace to you. And these men are scared. They're thinking that maybe they were seeing a, an abri- a, 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 like a spirit of some type. John adds an important detail that might help us to understand why it is that they thought that they were seeing a spirit. I'm reading from John's account, chapter 20, verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So what we learn when we add John's account with Luke's account is that Jesus just appeared instantly in a locked room. Now, if that happened to you, Would you not think, well, this is a spirit or this is some kind of a vision we're having? And so now it's a little bit easier to understand. I mean, how well would you have secured that room if you were one of those disciples and you were fearing an imminent raid possibly to try to arrest you? Because that's what these guys are fearing. They're fearing that the Jewish authorities are going to be coming after them next. And so they've got this room locked up, and all of a sudden Jesus appears right in the middle of them? I mean, that obviously would be mind-boggling. So they thought that they were seeing a spirit. That is, they did not believe that Jesus was there in body, and I, I think it's kind of hard to blame them. Jesus had just instantaneously appeared in a room that the Apostle Paul, who was the, excuse me, Apostle John, who was there, says was locked in fear that they might be arrested. Let me go on with Luke's account. Luke adds, uh, and he said to them, this is Jesus talking, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, 
he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Now, when Jesus is standing there, and it's obvious that they are doubting whether they're really seeing him, whether it's really him or some kind of a spirit appearance, he asked them a couple penetrating questions. The first one is, why are you troubled? Now, if they truly believed that Jesus had risen, uh, but had just not seen him yet, they would have gladly received him. I want you to think about that a little bit. So let's just say that when all these reports were coming in, that they were saying to themselves, yeah, Jesus must have risen from the dead. Can't figure out why he hasn't shown up for, for us yet, but it must be true. We'll look forward to the day when we see him. That might have made it a little bit different, a different reaction when these fellows saw the Lord. But obviously, that's not what happened. So let's think again about what Christ asked them. Why are you troubled? Well, they're troubled because they have been disbelieving. They refuse to believe a lot of these accounts that have been coming in. And so the second question that Jesus asks is right along the same lines, why do doubts arise in your hearts? So as they're sitting there or standing there, maybe they jumped back, we don't really know. But as they're in the room there with Jesus, it seems that some of them at least are trying to calculate, well, is this real or is this something like some of these other people have said they experienced? Am I just imagining this? You see, they had been doubting everybody else, and now the, they're doubting themselves. Now, Jesus then gives them three convincing proofs that he is not only there, but that it is genuinely him and he's there in bodily form. Now, here's the first one. He says, behold my hands and my feet. So what would be the significance of looking at Jesus' hands and feet? Well, I think it's obvious that they still bore the marks of Christ's crucifixion. I'll give you an, an opinion here. I do not believe that your resurrected body, assuming that you belong to Christ, that you have him as your Lord and Savior, I do not believe that your resurrected body will carry any scars or wrinkles, etc., that came with the curse of sin upon your body. If you were born with a birth defect, I do not believe you'll have it in heaven. That is part of living on a sin-cursed world. If there's been some major injury that's happened to you, I don't think you'll have that. If you're an older saint, and you've now your your body has grown old. Well, I don't think you're going to be in heaven forever with that older body. But the passage that is before us seems to indicate that Jesus will bear the marks of our sin, the marks of the cross throughout all of eternity. Uh, probably, I think, a reminder of his love so that we will always forever praise him for what he endured to save us from our sin. So Mark number one, convincing proof number one, he says, look, or behold, my hands and my feet. Second proof that he was giving them, handle me and see. Jesus encouraged the disciples to touch him so they could be certain that he was really there in body. Now, the apostle John, by the way, who was there and was in that room, wrote a letter later on in life that we now call 1 John in our Bibles. It's toward the end of your Bible, back near the book of Revelation. And if we got our history correct, and I think we have, he was, by that time of the writing of the epistle of 1 John, he was like the last living disciple of Jesus on earth. 
And he was writing to some believers who had been tempted to imagine that Jesus and his deity were invented. And there were some that were saying, well, he never really had a body. Other people were saying, well, he really became God or, or he was a lesser being than God. And so listen to how John opens his first epistle called the epistle of 1 John. Again, in the back of your Bible, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, that which was from the beginning. And by the way, when John's talking about the beginning there, he's talking about the the creation, okay? And that's a reference to his gospel, the gospel of John, which opens in the beginning was the word. And so he's going back to that. He says, that which is from the beginning, the fact that Jesus is the eternal God, which we have heard. And what he's saying is, I heard Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes. He's saying, I saw Jesus. He says, which we have looked upon. And that actually, the idea of look there is the word to, to stare at. I've stared at him. I believe what he's talking about is in his resurrection body. I heard him. I saw him. I stared at him. He goes on. And our hands have handled. He said, I touched him. I'm not making all this stuff up. He said, he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the word of life is how John will refer to Jesus. He is saying to all of us, look, I know he rose from the dead. I was there. I heard him. I saw him. I stared at him. I touched him. I handled him. He was alive. I saw the resurrected Christ. So proof number one that Jesus is really there in body was when he says, behold, my hands and my feet. Number two, handle me, touch me and see. And number three, when he eats in front of him, he says, do you have any food here? And I'd be interested to see, you know, how, how they handed that to them. If Again, if they're terrified and, and a little bit scared to handle it, hand him something, but uh, anyway, he takes the bread and the, and the honeycomb, and he, he eats in front of them. I'm sorry, I think it was a fish and honeycomb. He eats in front of them. And obviously, these disciples are just stunned that they're in the presence of the living Son of God. He has actually risen from the dead. Now, so Jesus is bringing comfort to his disciples when he first sees them. But he also brings rebuke and let me go back to Mark chapter 16 and verse 13 and read it to you. It says, Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So Jesus did rebuke his disciples for their unbelief and what he what Mark calls hardness of heart. So what about this unbelief? Well, it's he was... It was upon being reminded of Jesus' words that he had risen from the dead. Remember, Jesus said several times to them that he was going to rise three days after his death. His enemies knew about it. His disciples had heard that repeatedly. Evidently, they, they thought he was talking symbolically or something else. They really did not uh, expect that to happen after he died on the cross. They were just devastated by that event. But once they had heard different people saying this, and remembered his words, which I'm confident they did, it would seem that the disciples should have believed those accounts that came to them that Jesus had risen, especially because they're coming from people who are credible. We're talking about Mary Magdalene, a woman that, yes, she had a checkered past, but 
but she had completely changed and was a faithful follower of Christ all the way to the cross. She was there at the cross standing with Jesus' mother. You also think about these men who were on the road to Emmaus, and although we don't know the second man's name, Cleopas, we know, and we do know that they were friends close enough to the disciples themselves that they knew where they'd be, and they were in hiding. So these are men who they would have known. They would have known their character. And also the other women that accompanied Mary uh, that were on the way to visiting the tomb. Of course, they saw the tomb themselves in their own account of seeing the Lord. These people were not the kind of people that would be lying. I I guess they just assumed that they were in some way um, overcome because of their emotion. But the reality is Christ rebuked them for their unbelief. And then he mentions their hardness of heart. It seems that as the accounts came in from Mary, the other ladies who had visited the tomb, and then the two followers of Christ, who were not part of the original 12 disciples, that those who had seen nothing yet were, were, were hurt by the fact that Jesus had not appeared to them and thus wished to dismiss these other accounts. Now, they, they did. By the time that the two men from, um, uh, from uh, Emmaus got there, they did have Peter talking to them about seeing Jesus, and it, it does say in Luke's account that they did believe Peter's account, that the disciples themselves, now they're saying, well, when Peter sees Jesus, that, that had to be true. But they're still s- seeming to try to deny these other, these other people who are saying that they'd seen Christ. And, and so it seems that they are being hard-hearted, as Jesus uh, d- describes it. So we need to remember something, and that is that God often does things in ways different than what we would expect. I mean, honestly, if I'm one of the 12, I'm thinking like they would be. And that is, I would expect that Jesus would appear to us before he does a lot of these other people. That would be my expectation. Matter of fact, um, again, I can understand why many of them did not anticipate the resurrection because they were so devastated by his crucifixion. Yet, Jesus did not do things the way that they expected. And the reality is, we've got to be good with that. Many, many times, God works in ways that we don't expect, and these men just were not willing to accept that, not until they saw Christ himself. And then I want you to also notice that when Jesus appears to his disciples here, he also commissioned them. And I'll use John's record of Jesus' call for his disciples to be witnesses of what they had seen and heard and to tell the world about Christ. I'm reading now out of John chapter 20, and verses 21 and 22 it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice in this commission there's a comparison. So just as Jesus was sent by God the Father, and what did, was Jesus sent to do? Well, he describes it earlier in his, in his public ministry, when he was um, reaching to Zacchaeus, the, the publican, the, the tax collector. And a lot of people were angry with Jesus for, for having anything to do with this sinful man. And what Jesus said is, the Son of Man has come. All right, so this is, he's saying, this is why I've come. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So now let's put this now in the context of Jesus appearing to his disciples at his resurrection. He's saying, as the Father sent me, so I have sent you. 
So just like Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost, that's what he was saying to his disciples. That's what now you need to be doing. So there's this comparison, but then there's also an enablement because the apostles were given the Holy Spirit to empower them to fulfill the ministries that Jesus would give them. Now, the Holy Spirit would be given in a special way a few days later. That hasn't happened yet, but he has breathed on them, and he said, receive the the, the Holy Spirit, and so this is something that is going to come to them, and they're going to be enabled to do this miraculous thing of seeking and saving the lost throughout the world. And you say, well, that's great, wonderful thing for those disciples to do that, but that's really not my job. Well, can I take you to a passage of Scripture that tells us that this is not just the disciples, the 12 apostles' job or a pastor's job to seek and to save the lost. This is everybody's job once you come to know Christ as Savior. Where I'm going is Matthew chapter 28. This is something that Jesus said, again, after his resurrection. This is later. This is at the time when he is going to be soon to return to heaven. And he's talking, it's the last three verses of Matthew's gospel. I'm reading Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, and the them is a large group of disciples uh, up near Galilee. And he says to these people, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Oh, so all these people were to be out there making disciples everywhere across the world, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, so we're supposed to be, to when we know Christ as Savior, one of the things we're supposed to do is to reach other people for Christ. Now, he also said that we're to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, it's name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a very powerful argument for the Trinity right there, because they're all put on equal plane, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says this, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. All right. So if Jesus told his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, I want you to be out there representing me in the world. I want you to help other people to follow me, come to Christ. Okay, if that's the truth, And now when they reach someone, they're supposed to teach whoever they reach all the, to do all the things that Jesus told them to do. That means that we all are to be witnesses for the Lord. We're all to help reach and, and uh, bring the lost into the fold. And I would just say this, that there are people that you can reach that probably very few people, if anyone else can. There may be people who would listen to you that would never listen to a preacher, that would never listen to a radio broadcast, that would never, they would never give a, a church a, or a church leader the time of day, but they would listen to you. And so your job is the same as my job, really, not, ex- not exactly, and we'll all be doing it in different ways, in different contexts, but the object of reaching the lost, of helping people to follow Christ, to come to know the Lord and to follow him, that's on all of us. So he said, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and here's the power to do it. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we do have the ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
to reach and 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 help the lost. And what do we do? We help them become disciples of Christ. Then we encourage them to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, which is identifying with Jesus that I'm a follower of his, that I've been saved and I'm not ashamed of it. And then we try to teach them everything that God has taught us. And that's really what church is supposed to be about. It's what the Christian life is about. And so I'd encourage you to be involved, not sitting on the sidelines, but in the game, in the, it's really in the battle for the souls of men. Now, when this event takes place and Jesus has appeared to the disciples, we're told in John chapter 20 and verse 24 and following that there was one of the disciples who was missing. And so I'm going to start in John chapter 20, verse 24. It says, but Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So this is a problem. Thomas missed out. If and you're just joining verse 25 us, you're listening says, to the, the other disciples Hope therefore said to him, we have seen the Baptist Lord. Church. Now, but he back said to, to the them, message. unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So we have a second appearance of Christ. It's going to take place in just a few verses down here. But let me just start by saying, that we have Thomas's unbelief in between these two appearances. They're about eight days difference. What, what was the reason? Why is it that Thomas seems to be so hardened in his unbelief? Well, Thomas, again, is not there the first time Jesus appeared to the other disciples in Mass, and, and why we're not told. Could have been anything from sickness to fear of being easily caught to discouragement to some other fear or pressing concern. What we do know is that for whatever reason, Thomas was absent, and that meant he missed out on his first chance to see the risen Christ. Now, I honestly find it hard to imagine that whatever kept Thomas away from the disciples that first Sunday night was of greater importance than being there when Jesus first appeared to his scared and confused followers. I think that Thomas probably regretted that the rest of his life. But again, you can't Undo that, we have a statement, many of you I'm sure say it as well, you can't cry over spilled milk. I mean, he's he's not there. He missed it. All right? But there's a stubbornness in his unbelief. Thomas was told by all the other disciples that they had seen Jesus, but he refused to believe them. Now consider how many reports Thomas now is denying to be true. He's now rejecting the testimony of Mary Magdalene, the testimony of the other women who visited the tomb. He's rejecting the testimony of the two who were on the road to Emmaus. He's rejecting the testimony of the apostle Peter, who says, yes, I saw him personally. And, And now he's taking all the 10 other disciples whom he knows, and I'm sure in many sense loves these guys. These are his friends. And he's throwing that all out. This is why he gets the name Doubting Thomas. Now, the level of his unbelief. He's gotten to the place where he says, I will not believe unless I see the nail prints in Jesus' hands. Remember how Jesus said when he appeared to the other 10 of them, behold my hands. Okay, take a look. Okay, so he says, unless I see the nail prints in Jesus' hands, unless I put my finger into the nail prints of Jesus' hand and put my hand into his side, Thomas says, I will not believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, that brings us then to the next verse in John chapter 20, when Thomas does have an encounter with the risen Christ. 
says this, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. So all of a sudden now, it's eight days later, and we see that Thomas is in the room. So upon seeing Jesus, Thomas will go from a man who is denying the fact of the resurrection to a man who will proclaim Jesus' deity. And again, we don't have the history of Thomas's life after this in the Bible, but extra-biblical sources tell us that Thomas would later go and share the gospel in nations uh, uh, away from Israel and would die for his faith and would die telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead and was truly alive. But at this point, Thomas is, for those days in between, the first appearance of Christ to the other ten, and this appearance eight days later, Thomas's unbelief is continuing. He's still in denial for another eight days or so. And so let me just tell you, God doesn't work on your timetable. Some of you may have some questions you can't figure out. And by the way, none of us, I think, have all the answers. God's mind is bigger than ours. Uh, I had a chance to talk to a young fella uh, just uh, this uh, uh, maybe a week ago. And good conversation. But he's asking he's asking some good questions. But the reality is, is that I don't know that I have all the answers to every single question a person's going to bring up. Matter of fact, I'll guarantee I don't. I like to take a stab at them, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be able, especially to answer according to what you may want. But the reality is God's not taking polls. God's not up there saying, oh, well, you know, Elaine thinks I ought to do this, and so I better do it. No way. God's not concerned about you and I um, catch, you know, catching up to us, we got to catch up to him. And so God doesn't work on our timetable. Thomas is in unbelief, and he's going to have to twist there for a few more days, but it's his own fault. He is denying things that have been told to him by reputable people. And it's also, though, we, to Thomas's credit, let's give him some credit here, it is important uh, to not abandon ship in times of doubt. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people when they go through times of doubt, they stop going to church. They stop hanging around with God's people, and many times they start listening to people who hate the Lord, and then they wonder why, they, why their faith gets so uh, greatly damaged. But Thomas is at least, let's, let's give him some credit here, even though he is still in doubt and rebellion and has a hard heart, here he is meeting with the disciples again. He's with them. And so since he's with them this time, now he has his unbelief shattered by the risen Christ. So what happens? Well, Jesus stood in the midst and said, peace be to you. Jesus greeted all of his disciples. And then he, he talked specifically to Thomas, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach hither, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, there's a couple things. If you were Thomas, or if you put yourself in his sandals, when Jesus starts saying, reach here your finger and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side, what's that telling you? That's telling you that Jesus heard all of the stupid things you were saying a few days ago. That when you were proudly and really foolishly 
standing for truth. You're not going to be led down the wrong road of all these people that are getting excited and thinking that Christ rose from the dead. You're going to you're not going to believe that foolishness. And then you make that boast unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and stick my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I'm not going to believe. And all of a sudden you realize something. Jesus heard that. He heard how foolish I sounded. And, of course, Jesus then will rebuke Thomas's unbelief. He doesn't do it in a mean way, but he does it in a way that's very real. So notice Thomas' reaction after, after Jesus says, Okay, Thomas, reach here your finger. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. By the way, Jesus does not rebuke him for calling for Thomas calling him his God. And those that would deny Jesus' deity, I'm telling you, you're going to have a hard time with this verse. Because Jesus does not immediately, as an angel would do, if someone tried to fall down and worship an angel, they will tell them to get up. Matter of fact, there was a Cornelius in, in Acts chapter 10. And when the apostle Peter showed up to tell him the gospel, and, and God had told Cornelius to send for Peter, when Peter gets there, Cornelius has not yet fully understood the gospel. And so Peter gets there, he bows on his knees in front of Peter, and Peter says, don't bow in front of me, I'm just a man like you are. But when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, what is Jesus' reaction to that? Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. So he's really saying, Thomas, you're right, finally. Now, he's, again, not being mean. He's not being sarcastic about it. I, I think, again, I'm, I'm glad that that uh, God is merciful, but I, I could be a little bit sarcastic at times, and I, I would have to be, I'd be tempted at that point. But Jesus says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. So he's saying, Thomas, you're right now. You've got it right. I am your Lord. I am your God. But he also goes on and says this, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus rebukes Thomas's unbelief, but he also blesses those who will believe in him without seeing. And that's, by the way, you and I. Today, we I don't wouldn't believe you, by the way, if you told me you'd seen the resurrected Christ. I, I'm sorry, I probably wouldn't believe that. I don't think Jesus is going around appearing to people in mass today. Again, he's God, so if there's exceptions out there, but I, I'm just not going to hang my head on that. I'm not. That's not where my faith is based. But I will tell you this, that Jesus said there's a special blessing for those that haven't seen and yet have believed it. By the way, there's one of them, of those disciples, at least, in that group that's that's in that category. That would be the Apostle John, who, if you remember, walked into the empty tomb, saw the grave clothes, didn't see an angel, didn't see Jesus. But he will record that when he went into that tomb, he saw and believed and John, again, is the one disciple that'll live the longest. We'll get the book of Revelation. And I think he's one in that category. And again, there have been millions of people since who have not seen the resurrected Christ and yet have believed, have come to faith in him as their Savior. I hope you're in that category. And if not, I pray that you'll listen as we try to conclude these, uh, these two appearances of Christ. See, think of these things through a little bit. Conclusion number one. It's easy to be blinded by your pride. I think in the disciples' case, 
the crucifixion of Christ did not fit into their expectations. Since they did not expect Jesus as the Messiah to die, they're not thinking about his crucifixion making any sense. They're not understanding that he's dying on the cross for their sins. Now, I will say that Jesus did talk about these things, but not, I think, to the point where they grasped them. And so they're thinking Messiah, he's going to reign as king, the kingdom is 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 coming in, and hopefully we're going to live to be part of that. And when Jesus is crucified in such a humiliating, awful way, it just is devastating to them. It did not fo- follow their expectations. It's easy to be blinded by your pride because the disciples are supposed to be, after Christ, the experts. They're supposed to be the ones that really understand what Jesus is teaching. They're with him more than anybody else on earth. And yet, they don't understand the cross any more than anybody else did at this point. But not only did the cross of Christ not fit into their expectations, but the resurrection did not fit into their expectations either. Because they don't foresee the cross, even though Jesus has been talking about it, they're trying to evidently think that was symbolic or block that out of their minds because they don't understand that, then they really are not looking at all that the resurrection was going to happen. And since they did not expect the resurrection to happen, these first appearances of Jesus did not also did not fit their expectations. While they're cowering in fear, wondering if they're next to be arrested, well, Mary Magdalene and the other ladies are on their way to the tomb. And again, as a man, you may say, well, what's the good of, of anointing Jesus' body? He's already dead. He's not going to know anything about it anyway. It's not going to make any difference for him. Yet here those ladies are. They're going there to honor their Lord. And they come back. Mary Magdalene saying, I saw Jesus. He called me by name. He actually told me that, that uh, he showed me that he's alive. Well, they're having a hard time believing that Christ would appear to Mary first. Again, their pride. Next, these other women come who had also gone with Mary to the tomb, but, but they had seen something different because Mary came back. And, and now when, when uh, in the interim between Jesus' appearance to Mary, all of a sudden now uh, they, they, they see Jesus as well, and they come back saying that they've seen Christ. And then you got these two random followers of Jesus who are on the road to Emmaus, and Luke talks about them and how they have this long conversation with a man that they thought was just a stranger, come to find out when they're breaking bread with him that it is in fact Jesus. Their eyes were restrained from, from knowing him. And then he vanishes out of their sight. And these people, these random people, are seeing Jesus before his 12 apostles are? It seems to have been easier for the disciples to deny that Jesus had risen from the dead than to take a seat behind the women and even behind these other followers of Jesus that are outside of the original 12 and let them teach teach the 12 about the Lord's resurrection. You know, let me just say this. It takes humility to learn. It takes humility to learn from someone you are accustomed to lead and teach. I want you to think about that. So how about you? Does God want you to listen and learn from someone that 
honestly, you consider yourself over in the pecking order. Let me give you an example. How about your spouse? Say, well, I can't tell my spouse that she was right or he was right. They're, I'm used to being right and they're wrong. And all of a sudden they have a relationship with God and you don't. Well, you can't let them tell you uh, about God and lead you to the Lord. You don't want that. Many people are too proud to listen to a spouse. Many people are too proud to listen to someone who's younger than them. Maybe it's somebody in your, uh, whoever it is in your circle of friendships. And this person's younger than you are, and and all of a sudden they've gotten stirred up about the Lord, and, and they're growing. And the temptation is really to just kind of kind of think, well, they're kind of over the top. I don't need to learn from them. Maybe they've been saved uh, uh, only a few days or weeks, and, and they're seeming to grow like crazy, and you would consider yourself a Christian maybe for most of your life, and, and they're seeming to go beyond where you're at in a hurry. Can you learn from someone younger in the faith than you? How about someone you used to teach? Maybe you taught Sunday school and and yet you've drifted from the Lord and here's one of your former students and they're going on with God. Or maybe it's even a, a as you were a teacher in school and you got some young people that now are coming up and, and they're talking about the Lord and, and about God's word and things you don't understand. Are you humble enough to listen to them? Even sometimes when you look at work situations, someone you're responsible to lead. And you're the boss, and, and they're the employee, and why would I listen to them? How about someone that you're over in the pecking order of your family? you got a younger brother or sister, and they've always been the kid brother. They're always the kid sister. You you know, you know always showed them how things were, and you were the one that was the kind of the, the, the bigger person, the, the person that helped them out. And now they've come to faith in Christ, and they're trying to explain to you about how you need to come to the Lord, know the Lord, and and you don't want any part of it because you're too you're too ahead of them in the pecking order to listen to them. Maybe it's even one of your own children. My kids are all in their twenties now, and they're in the mode and the time of life where they like informing dad and straightening him out on issues that they're thinking through and. And, you know, there's many times I need to tell myself to be humble enough to listen. There have been times when my godly wife has gotten me aside later on, not in front of the kids, but she'll do it later on. She'll say, Lane, you talked to them so proudly. You were so, you were, you were way over the top. You need to listen to them. And she's been right, I'll tell you. I've had to make things right many times over the years with my kids. I've also seen that they like to talk to me and to bounce their thoughts off of me to see what I think about them. And honestly, it's it's because they value my opinion, and I need to take that as a good thing. So are you and I humble enough to listen and to learn, even from our own children? Seems like the disciples are really struggling with that when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, that they've got to take a back seat for a little bit to the Mary Magdalene's and the other ladies, to these two guys who are outside of the 12 apostles who've all seen Christ before they did. And so you know what it is? It's easy to become unreasonable and hardened when we become proud. Thomas rejected all the evidence that even his most trustworthy friends were giving him. 
and stubbornly refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. His standard of proof was not rational, trustworthy witnesses, but his own personal experience. Thomas had become hardened and unreasonable. And Jesus did rebuke him for that. But you know, also, willful rejection of the truth is a serious sin. It can actually condemn your soul. And so it's not something that's funny, something that we need to just say, oh, that's just the way I am. I'm a proud person. No, it's something that can actually destroy your soul. Let me read to you out of First Peter, Second Peter, excuse me, chapter 3. I'm starting with verse 3. It says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter is saying, there's going to come people who are going to be mocking the fact that Christ is going to return. They're going to say, where is this promise? You guys have been talking about that for, oh, for years and years, and it's never happened. Verse 5, for this they willingly forget. That's what you call self-inflicted blindness. It's, a, it's, an, it's a, what happens when we become proud. This they willfully forget. Now, they forget a couple things here. Number one, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What he's talking about is creation. And so one of the things that, that when we become proud, we want to forget about is that there's a creation all around us <clears throat> that speaks of the eternal God and how he made that and how he made us. And so we, we want to, we willingly, we put it out of our minds. We don't want to think about the fact that, yes, there's a God out there who made that. And so we come up with all ways around to get around that, the creation. But then he goes on something else we won't forget, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Oh, we like to put aside the account of the scripture that God brought Noah's flood that destroyed the whole world. Now, why is it that we want to forget about the flood and we want to forget about creation? Because creation tells me that I belong to God. And what the flood tells me is that there are times when God steps in and deals with sin. That's what both of those accounts really tell us. I'm created by God. I belong to him. And boy, if, if I get far enough from God, God may step in and deal with my sin. And by the way, we're all going to stand before him. But notice how he applies this now. He says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the same God, the same power through his word that made the heavens and the earth, they're preserving them. It says they are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, which means this, there's coming a day when all this is going to burn up. That's what Peter's telling us. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's saying what Peter's telling us is time is not a big deal with God. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, which means God hasn't forgotten that Christ is going to come back. He's not forgotten his promise that one day this whole thing's going to burn up. He's not forgotten about any of that. But he's long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants you to be saved. He wants your loved ones to be saved. Some people say, well, why? I've heard Christian people say this. I just can't see how God's going to let things go much farther, or why doesn't God step in and deal with all this mess? Well, I'll tell you one of the major reasons, because God is interested in saving people before he has to judge this world. But there is coming a day, because he says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come, 
And here's how he describes it. It will come as a thief in the night. Now think of that. The thief doesn't come and announce he's coming. He he comes silently. He comes unexpectedly. That's how the end is going to come. And he says, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Oh, that we would not, in our pride, be willingly ignorant of the truth. Thomas had gotten to that point. But Jesus was merciful to his wayward servant. Jesus had called Thomas to be his follower. Thomas had obeyed the Lord, had left all to follow his Savior. Yet Thomas, in his pride and distress over Christ's death, had gotten into an unreasonable state. In his mind, he was not going to be taken in by false reports of Jesus' loving followers that they had seen the Lord. He would stand for the truth, even if it meant standing alone. You and I, you know, can convince ourselves that we are in the right and that we're, when we are actually in the wrong due to our proud and deceptive hearts. And so let me just give you two questions as we try to wrap this up. Number one, if you had a dispute with a loved one lately, maybe it's been festering for a long time even, and you are convinced that you were right in what you said, what you did, would you admit it if you came to understand that you were in the wrong? She so said, well, I don't think I was. Okay, that's fine. I've got some of those situations myself. But are would you admit it if if somehow God showed you that you were in the wrong, would you be willing to go back and make that right? I think that's a critical question and something that you need to ask yourself, and that is, am I open? If God showed me I was wrong, am I open to making that thing right? I had to do that just with um, a situation just recently where I, I made a commitment. I will pray about this. I don't think I was wrong in what I did, but if I was, you better believe I want to make it right. I want God to show me that. So if you've had a dispute and you are convinced that you're in the right, would you admit it if you come to understand that actually you were wrong? Let me give you a second question. This is for those of you that may have listened to this broadcast and you can't figure out why you're still listening because you don't believe in Christ. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus Christ really was the promised Savior, the Messiah, would you want to know that? Honestly, some of you may want to know the truth and others of you may not. Let me give you a couple of reasons why you may not want to know. First of all, you may say to yourself, I got too much to lose. I, I'm, maybe I'm a leader in another religion that denies Jesus is the Christ. That was the, 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 many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. That's exactly where they were. Or maybe you have family members or friends who would reject you if you should become a follower of Christ. And let me tell you this, that there are people who are abandoned by their closest family members. And Jesus had said to those who are considering following him, unless you're willing to, to put me ahead of your father, your mother, your, all of your family, you, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Others of you may think to yourself, well, uh, I got too much to lose because I make my money or I make my living doing things that I know are displeasing to God. And I'd have to quit that. So it cost me financially, maybe even, even I, I'd be in danger to quit. Again, I remember talking to a lady. Um, her father was a hitman in the mafia. And uh, I think he was dead by the time she was talking to me, so there was no, nothing I could do for him. But, but can you imagine hearing the gospel as a person that's made your money uh, being a hitman in the mafia? Well, you're going to have to obviously reject that lifestyle if you're going to come to know Christ. Well, 
All right, so some of you may say, I got too much to lose. I, I really don't want to know if Jesus was the Messiah. Others of you may say, well, I don't want to change. So I don't want to know because I don't want to change. Maybe you're involved in an immoral relationship, and I've run into people like that. And you know that to follow Christ, you need to get out of that. Others of you may have sins that you love to commit, and you know that God would ask you to forsake them. Others of you may be convinced that you can't change, uh, even if you wanted to. Maybe Satan the Scott is thinking that. Let me read you a, a couple verses. Actually, these were verses that God gave me when he called me to preach. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant of the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now listen to this. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. God can deliver the blind. People who can't see because they're too proud. God can deliver the prisoners from the prison. He can take you out of that bondage you're in. He can deliver you out of the darkness of the prison house. Some of you may say, well, I don't want to know if Jesus really is the Savior because I've done too many evil things and God would never accept me anyway. Well, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, which simply means this, God can save you. Christ will intercede on your behalf and your sins have already been paid for on the cross, other scriptures tell us. You can be forgiven and saved. Let me say, you need to take this step, though. God gives grace to the humble. When our pride blinds us. Three verses, Proverbs 3, verse 34, James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 all say the same thing, and that is God gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself before the Lord. Be willing to listen and learn from the Lord. And keep in mind that God may not always come in the way you expect. He may not come with the truth in the way you expect. He may not, the truth may not come from the person you expect. But God desires to the rescue the, the proud. He really does. But he gives grace to the humble. May you humble yourself before him today. You will find his forgiveness and his salvation. Father, bless these folk. May you help them to draw near to you. Lord, humble the proud, save the lost, strengthen the Christian, we pray in Jesus' name. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Life and light, he free.